0: April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This podcast is brought to you by Fly Gal Ventures. With Christmas just around the corner, we've got some fantastic gifts for the fly fisher and your family. Rhea feathers for fly tying, instructional DVDs, even co-ed fishing shirts, there's something for everyone at www.flygal.ca. Make a purchase over $20 before December 14th, and we'll even throw in a Flygal limited edition Deanne Michelin buff. Thank you so much for your business and for helping keep this podcast rolling. Not in the mood to shop, but still want to show your support? Please take a moment to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes or the podcast server you currently use. Dr. Andy Danielchuk is a professor at the University of Massachusetts. His work covers both marine and freshwater systems, with a primary focus on stress physiology, behavioral ecology, spatial ecology, predator-prey interactions, and adaptations in life history as a response to disturbance. Andy has been at the forefront of revolutionary science in the Bahamas, and is now currently spearheading a program taking place in northern BC. I met with Andy during his time up north to see if I could learn about the project that had so many people around me abuzz.
1: In Toronto, Canada. And I spent a lot of time uh, kicking around southern Ontario and up in the Corthas, doing a lot of fishing and hiking and camping.
0: I didn't know you were Canadian. I am
1: Canadian. But
0: where do you live now?
1: Uh, I'm a professor at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, which is about two hours west of Boston. Uh, and I'm in the Department of Environmental Conservation. And it's a very applied department, fisheries, forestry, wildlife
0: Did you always know you wanted to go down that road?
1: Yeah, let's see. So when I was five years old, I was the youngest of four kids. Okay. And when I came along, my parents were ready to travel. And uh, we had a great opportunity to go to Andros Island in the Bahamas back in the 70s. And my dad stuck a mask on my face and just kind of shoved me in the water. And after that point, I saw the fish and I saw sharks and I saw bonefish. And I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And I remember going back to uh, to school, to kindergarten, and you know, you get the question, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a marine biologist and a dump truck driver, and uh, <laughs> and I've done both actually. So seriously, yeah, yeah. So it's it's
0: pretty neat. Were your parents fishermen? Nope.
1: no. Nope. My parents uh, liked being outdoors, but neither of them fished. And so I started fishing when I was probably around seven or eight. Uh, my godfather had a stock pond and. You know, I had a chance to fish for some trout. And then it wasn't really until probably sort of middle school age. Uh, I had a really, I still have a very good friend. It's a lifelong friend. I had a cottage up in uh, Georgian Bay, near Georgian Bay. Right. Uh, and we'd go up there and either went fishing or went windsurfing. And I just, yeah, that was it. And then somewhere along the way, I kind of, you know, continued to fall in love with fish. And the aquatic world, both marine and freshwater, and decided that I was going to steer my career in that direction. We did my uh, undergraduate at Trent University in Peterborough. That you know, I, I was a crappy student in high school. It was very polarized in terms of my grades. Biology and geography, I did really well, and you know, history and English, I did crappy. I didn't wasn't interested in that stuff. I wanted to do the fun stuff and be outside and mess around in nature. And um, luckily, Trent University. Allowed me to really focus really early in my academic career. And, uh, you know, I went from being like a C student to being an A student and found my calling and uh, really started to appreciate the role fish play in the natural environment and also how important fish were for me. And living around the Great Lakes in the 70s and 80s when you know, they were they're still a mess. But you know, I, I really took it to heart where, you know, I remember them you know, and the Minister of Natural Resources still does this. Um and they produced the book that shows you, you know, your consumption rates and different lakes and don't eat these ones because they're contaminated. You know, it was it was really bad. And I was you know, became pretty sad about the nature of our environment and what humans do to it. And rather than kind of complaining about it, I you know, steered my career in a direction where I was able to kind of think more about fish conservation and do a lot of research related to fish conservation. And now I teach fish conservation to undergrads. So.
0: so you're kind of the sort of guy who says he's going to do something and does it.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty stubborn. Um, some of it's kind of self-serving in a sense that uh, I now have uh, a wonderful son who's eight and a daughter that's five and they love being outside, and they like to fish. And I feel that if I'm going to use my energy for anything, it's going to be to try to help them have the same opportunities that I had when I was a kid, mostly being connected to the outdoors and fishing and and traveling and exploring. And, uh, you know, I don't think that we do a good job uh, in some respects with, you know, taking care of our natural resources. And I think what I like to try to do, not only with my kids, but also with my students at UMass and anybody else that wants to listen is try to empower them, this understanding that, um, you know, it seems kind of hokey. I remember back in the day they talked about this whole one person can make a difference. and
0: I don't think that's hokey.
1: It's not hokey, but, um, you know, the I think we've lost some of us have lost the the idea that that's possible because they see the world around them. They see catastrophic changes and habitat loss and all these other things if if we focus specifically on natural resources and quite often feel apathetic because they don't feel that they can make a considerable difference when so much of these larger things are going on around them. Do you think
0: that the internet and social media uh, polarizes that I think or increases that
1: I think it I think it has the opportunity to uh, motivate people, but I also think it has the opportunity to depress people too
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely you know what does. I mean like yeah, and, I,
1: and I think that that's where we have to be careful about how we convey information about the natural environment and how we um, use social media and the internet, and how rapidly things can be conveyed. And quite often, the message gets out before the message is thoroughly thought out. And quite often, I'm, you know, I cons- I'm concerned about that because you know the way society is going, and the way more and more people just glom onto little sound bites. Um, as opposed to listening to the whole story. We have to be very careful about how that influences their perceptions of what's going on around them. And then that, that influences how they make decisions about how they interface with fish and how they vote and how they shop and how they do other things. And, you know, I think we just have to be a little bit more careful about how we convey information. And just because we have a smartphone and access to the Internet... It doesn't mean we need to broadcast results, information prematurely, and also thinking about the ways that we communicate effectively, that, um, you know, quite often I feel we jump the gun in terms of how we communicate. Can you give
0: me an example of how how that is?
1: Yeah. um, You know... (laughs) and we can take this project that I'm doing here focusing on developing best practices for catch and release of steelhead. We're very excited. We're tagging fish, we're doing some blood physiology, we're we're gathering some data and we're not done yet. And even though we're excited about some of the results we're already seeing, I'm very careful with conveying those results before the the study's done. And and so and I work with my team and I coach my students about how we need to be careful about Getting information out at the right time and also, you know, not censoring it, but also we're only halfway through, right. you know, and, um, and then when we are done, you know, we will be very deliberate in terms of how we get the information out and also thinking about how that information can be used by others and not only just, you know, other scientists, but the stakeholders that are involved the other NGOs that have, you know, that are participating in the work. And um, so that, you know, and I've been saying this for a long time, especially in the recreational angling community and tied into the science that I do, especially related to best practices, what we need to try to foster is a consistent and persistent message. And it's when the message gets... Shifted a little bit, By or drifts. Whom? Well, it it. Um it's, it's when certain things get taken out of context.
0: Oh, that happens?
1: All the time. You know, like <laughs> it's kidding. just, you know, yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, let, um, me,
0: let me let me actually, I'm going to force you to backtrack if that's sure, okay. Sure, absolutely. I mean, it's totally the perfect segue. So let's just get straight into why I'm sitting here. Like yeah, the yeah. elephant in the room is that you are here in BC right now. Yep. We are sitting together in a fantastic log cabin, I might add, yep. at Missy and Whitey's Place in the Bulkley River Lodge. Yep. Uh, on bulkly and you're doing this crazy study that's got everybody talking yep. and I thought it would be great to instead of offering like you said sound bites or yeah. you know people thinking that they know what's happening I thought it'd be nice to sit down with you and give you as much time as you need to explain what's going on for sure now I understand you halfway through your study you don't have all the data I totally yep. get that yep we can have a revised edition of this later. Sure. But for now, why don't you walk me through the conception of whatever it is that you're up to right now?
1: Yep. Back in around you know 2000, I started focusing on recreational fisheries and developing best practices for catch and release. Did work with bonefish, and along the way, we've also done work with barracuda and small species of sharks and golden dorado and GTs. And along the way, based on connections, I had somebody suggested, like, have you ever looked at steelhead? And I, you know, started to think about it and I started to look through the literature and really was reflecting on the fact that in spite of steelhead being such an iconic species, that the type of work that I do with my colleagues hasn't necessarily been done. Um, By combining sort of stress physiology with short-term behavior to understand First to look at the stresses we impose on fish yep. and steelhead when we catch and release them, and then using that information to then develop strategies or the best practices about how we can minimize the impacts. And all along the way, you know, I think as a, as a culture, as a community, we look foolish if we say that we do not stress fish out. We put a little hook in them. We exercise them on the end of the line. So then we have to ask ourselves as a community, a large community of recreational anglers, whether you're a fly angler, a gear person, whatever, that we need to, if, if, if our goal is to try to ensure that the fish are in the water for us to enjoy in this generation and in future generations, you know, what can we do as individuals within a broader community to ensure that those fish will be around to be caught another day. And this even goes for people that want to harvest fish, not necessarily in this fishery, but in other fisheries, in that if there's a size limit, or if there's a regulation, those people practice catch and release, right? And so if their intention is uh, for them to put the fish back because of a regulation in hopes of that fish Growing to become legal size to be caught and harvested, one they practice catch and release, and two they should care about how those fish are handled. Yeah, and yeah. so it applies to everybody. It doesn't just apply to the, you know, the the nice fancy waiter. You know, it applies to everybody. It's everybody in the community, yeah, right? The fly fishing state. It's, it's you know, it, yeah, and so I I knew that, uh, and I've been I've watched all the the blogs and everything related to Steelhead and all of the different NGOs that are battling for attention and did my research and looked at what has been done in terms of understanding how Steelhead respond to angling stress with the intentions to develop those best practices. And there's been a little bit of work done, but on, on Hatchery Steelhead. And so I saw this as a really interesting opportunity to really focus on wild steelhead and also use these tools that my colleagues and I have developed to do really a rapid assessment. You know, to be able to develop an understanding about how steelhead respond to the stresses related to angling, to look at short-term behavior, and to very quickly turn that around to, uh, you know, this is not going to take years, it's going to take months after the study's done. And, you know, when I... First started to explore the idea of doing Steelhead, somebody suggested that I need to come up and and see what's happening on the Balkley. And some people thought I was crazy. Okay. Because of the, the politics <laughs> <coughs> associated with the fishery here. Yeah. And also with the number of different stakeholders involved. And there was also question about whether I would even get past the permission of the First Nations. And so part of me was like, this is going to be a really crazy place to try to do a study like this. And then quite often the way I think about it is that if I can do this in a place where there are so many stakeholders.
0: Can I, I have to interrupt you if yeah. you don't mind. Now when you say stakeholders, yep. who are you referring to?
1: So the, the, the people that live here that fish for steelhead, the people that come and visit, the lodge owners, the people that run hotels that might not even fish for steelhead. Everybody that has a, a stake in the future of the fishery, essentially anybody that cares.
0: This is a heart for that.
1: Yeah. Oh, for I sure. Mean, there,
0: all of us have a vested interest, like you said, whether it's emotional or financial, yep. uh, where we feel like we definitely have some sort of I don't want to say ownership, right? But that's kind of what it is. Sure, for know? sure. Um, so, just a couple things, and back to your Bahamas study, just because I'm trying to get a better understanding. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I had, because I had read some of your research papers that you sent me from the Bahamas, yeah, it was yeah. really, really forward thinking and quite inspiring, and it was really based on community. Yep. But were you doing? I mean, obviously, you were doing catch and release studies then. Yep. Were they of this at the same extent as this particular study is? Yep. Sure. Okay. Did you learn something in those studies that was kind of a that was revolutionary, or that was really fishery changing?
1: Yeah, for sure. And so I I can't take you know full credit. You know, my wife Sasha was focused on that for her masters. And so prior to moving into doing the work, the catch and release work on bonefish, we were you know listening to guides and listening to lodge owners and listening to anglers, and you know there was the the anecdotes that were out there and saying oh yes you know i you know i see bonefish they get eaten by sharks every once in a while but you know most of the time i see it swim away and it's fine that you see that you see right and so this is when we really started to you know focus on bonefish in shallow flats um the luxury there is that they're easy to observe once you release them and so we can com- we coupled the stress physiology with post-release behavior, and we quantify every element of the angling event. And what Sasha's study showed was that for every minute of air exposure, bonefish was six times more susceptible to predation, okay. either, either by a bonefish or, or either, either by a barracuda or a shark.
0: Now, were you tagging these fish? Is that how you were able so to monitor this? We were,
1: doing, we were using little bobbers, and we were able to follow them because they were in little shallow, they were in super shallow water, yeah. and and they're easy to see, which is very beneficial. It's very unlike most other fisheries. When you put it back in the Bulkley River, it swims away, and you're like, "Well, it's fine," and then it's gone. Yeah, right? yeah. And so, um, what that allowed us to do is produce some numbers, some quantif. Not everybody wants to hear numbers, but you know, there's a lot of people that like to know. That, I like to know you numbers. Know, yeah. yeah, and so to to quantify what the mortality rate is post release to quantify how our air exposure and handling time influences the behavior of you know bonefish and the susceptibility to predation by having those numbers and by linking it to different elements of the angling event we can change our behavior subtly yeah. and hopefully those changes in behavior result in large increases or, or Increases in survival, or you know, the increased opportunities for a fish to to grow, or to you know, make it to a spawning ground, or something. Um, and so, you know, this is what what we try to aim for is is we we don't make up the the ideas. We listen to people that are involved in the industry that have a stake in the industry whether again whether they're an angler or a lodge owner or a guide and are interested in the future of that fishery uh, or you know that species or that particular location Mm -hmm. and so we want to make we we try to make sure that the research that we do is is realistic right you know we don't make up the treatments we don't make up so um, a good way to expand on this is that when I came up here after some, somebody suggested I got to come up and see the fishery, yep. and I came up last year, this time last year, and uh, I was talking to a lot of the guides and some anglers, and they said, you know what we really want to know is, obviously air exposures, you know, a, a, uh, a big question for us. You know, how much air exposure is too much? And, and then also, you know, is there a difference between you know, a fish that's netted versus tail grabbed? Of course, yeah. And so that's how, you know, we honed in on the treatments, the the sort of the groups that we're looking at when we're, we're angling these fish, Um, because we're going to be addressing questions that are directly relevant to the people that are on the water all the time. And especially the guides that are then working with clients and instilling you know, sort of best practices on their, on their clients.
0: Mm -hmm. With the Bahamas one, I'm sorry. No,
1: that's fine. I just have
0: a, my brain is a uh, timeline.
1: That's okay. That's okay.
0: Did you ever put some sort of future planning into play when you got all this science? Mm -hmm. What did you do with it?
1: Yeah. So we, um, we worked with Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Okay. And you know, we, we helped them produce sort of best practices, brochures and um, little cards that for a while, and I think they're, it should be back, again went into fly line boxes. Okay, um, so it really we. I mean, we're very interested. That's one thing where I get a little frustrated um, in terms of my profession uh, as a scientist. You know, sometimes scientists just stop at the scientific publications, the things that go, you know, that not many people read. That are really boring and dry. Yeah, and um, you know, I think especially when you're dealing with something that people are so passionate about recreational fisheries I like to you know, take the extra step and get that information back into the hands so that people can use it
0: yeah hundred um, percent what did you find people had to do to, to reduce the predation
1: um, yeah minimize air exposure it
0: was okay yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. here's the next kind of elephant in the room for me then yeah Washington obviously has this policy now where you can no longer lift a wild steelhead out of the water yep again air exposure yep so has that, does that mean that there's already been a study on this done? No. Okay, so can you elaborate on
1: that? <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, it's a very precautionary measure. Um, fish don't breathe out of water. The gills are not designed to extract oxygen from air. They're designed to extract oxygen from water. Right. And it, it's funny, I when I, I gave a presentation at Oscars uh, last September, and I ended up, doing a little fish biology lesson because I was quite shocked that there are a lot of people that don't understand how fish breathe.
0: Give me the lesson.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean. Because you
0: got a lot of people talking. Yeah, about yeah,
1: yeah. It, yeah. Right? So, um, it's, uh, water flow going in the mouth and out the gills helps. Right. Right. But it's one way. So water going in through the operculum or the gills and out the mouth, it doesn't work the same. So the whole adage, I mean, we see this all the time in terms of best practices, brochures for species that we haven't done work for. They talk about moving a fish back and forth in the water. Right. Moving it backwards doesn't do anything. It's actually counterproductive. So it's Is either, it f- it's, it's either figure. well, it doesn't allow the fish to respire. Ah, okay. So it doesn't allow the fish to get the carbon dioxide, just like when we respire, right? We exhale carbon dioxide and we inhale oxygen. Fish also have to get rid of carbon dioxide. Right. And so in addition to if moving them backwards, in addition to not getting the oxygen they need, they can't get rid of the carbon dioxide. And that's another stressor. And so across the board, before we do all of the research on every species that we love to fish for, if we wanted to be precautionary about it, minimizing or eliminating air exposure would be the best thing to do. Right, you know, and for most of the studies that we've done on a you know, slew of species, and we, and then also in terms of just my colleagues and other colleagues and other people that's worked on on uh, recreational fisheries and looking at that stress of air exposure, air exposure is the big culprit. That uh, they're just fish just aren't. Most fish haven't evolved to extract oxygen from air. Right, um, and so you know, for that <coughs> that regulation in Washington, it's probably it's it's probably not a bad thing.
0: No, I don't think it's a bad thing, but I always wondered <laughs> yep. how it came to be. Yeah. And and I, you know, I had heard m- grumblings of, well, why do we need the study when it's already been done?
1: Here's a, sort of an anecdote. Some colleagues and I ran a symposium at the American Fisheries Society conference in Portland, Oregon last year, and even within our group of scientists there's sort of a debate about whether we need to do these, these catch and release studies on every species, or can we make blanket statements? And, you know, there were some of us in the room, some folks that were saying, oh, you know, well, we know that air exposure is bad and we know that exercising on the end of the line is bad. So if we, for every species, if we just reduce fight times and we don't air expose fish, it's fine. We don't need to do all these species specific site specific projects. And then we had a whole day of presentations, and we had a big roundtable discussion at the end. And even based on everything we saw, we kind of all came to the conclusion. It's like, you know what? We need to do almost the site-specific studies, and we also need to really look. Because there could be subtle variations between you know, how a wild steelhead on the bulkier responds to air exposure and handling time versus you know, steelhead in Washington. Um, in terms of you know how far they've had to migrate, in terms of water temperatures, in terms of when they're when they're angled, in terms of the strain, and so you know for as much as we like to to use these broad generalizations, again it goes back to like if we haven't had the time yet to do the research, a precautionary approach would be minimize or eliminate air exposure, reduce handling times, minimize fight times, but I think in in certain cases, um, especially in, like, in the Bulkley, when, you know, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, that all of a sudden you're seeing participation rates going up. There are more people that potentially, you know interfacing with the fish on the bulk loop. Yeah. Um, and I would
0: like to say for the listener, this is the busiest
1: year I've ever seen up <laughs> yeah. here. It's
0: insane. I mean, and, I told some the guys earlier because they're like, you know, don't post anything. It's like, are you fucking, excuse me, are you crazy? Of course I'm not posting anything. I'm posting grouse hunting because I can't handle the pressure out here. Yeah. So yeah. is that, is that related to
1: this? It's, it's not related to this, but what it means is that potentially more fish are being intercepted. More fish are being handled. And, if we can do this study that's very site specific that we can get you know the the stakeholders to rally around the results and so that you know whenever somebody goes into oscars you know or somebody goes to a lodge or somebody hits the airport in smithers there's a best practices brochure and it's not based on anecdotes it's based on the results of this study that says This amount of air exposure is bad. This amount of handling time is bad, and uh, and so you know that's why I think these site specific projects are important. And I think that because this is also one of the you know last remaining big pristine runs of steelhead, I think we're also going to learn a lot, Um, not only just about catch and release, but also the ecology. Right. You know the tags we're putting on these fish. They're relatively small because they were interested in the behavior of the fish following the release, so we didn't want to put a big tag on them. But they're, they're they're big enough that the batteries are going to last 170 days, so we're going to know where they end up.
0: Oh, wow, okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. So Is that it's, where it's, some of
0: the funding went? Because if we were to really start at the beginning of this, because yep. I, I remember when all the emails were going through with the Steel Society about what you yeah, guys yeah. were doing, do yeah, we yeah. condone this, do we want to participate, give funding, etc., etc. Yep. I mean, this involved funding.
1: Yep, for sure. And when
0: there's money involved, people talk. Oh, for sure. So you need to, to make... Money. Yep. And you needed to raise X yep. to be able to provide
1: what? Oh, I mean, I had to basically raise money to, you know, fly graduate students here to how, buy, how buy, how the tra- here? buy their trans. So I have three students here.
0: And they've been here for?
1: Uh, since Septem- September. Perfect. And yep. I actually have a fourth student that was here for a little while that's focusing on the social science, the Great. survey that's going around. Yep. To understand, you know, sanctioning versus praising, how we communicate right. um, within our community,
0: and we will be talking about that Yeah, the yeah surveys for sure, yeah. for sure. And then, of course, the tags as and well. the
1: tags themselves, and you know, the the fuel of driving the vehicles around and putting gas in people's boats and um, to feed people. And you know, what's what's interesting about this project is, and and although it doing it this way is a bit more work, it's. Uh, Reflecting on it, it's um, a really important element to this project that I have the support, or we have the support, of so many different groups. Yeah. And to me, we, talk, we mentioned ownership a little bit earlier. We said, well, maybe it's not quite ownership. Well, we want people to take ownership over the results of the study. Right. And we want to be able to develop the information and the way that we convey this information in a way that everybody that has a stake in the research feels comfortable and some ownership over disseminating it because right. that creates that consistent and persistent message. If it was just one organization that was dropping that dropped all the money to fund this research, it would have made it a little bit easier for me. I wouldn't have to have knocked on so many doors. Yeah. But at the same time, it would have just been one body and everybody else would say well that was their research that's not right. our research no you're right well guess what that. this is everybody's i mean you know there's i you know there's there's more than 5 or 6 different groups you know that are participating that have con- that have donated money or in kind support and that's important
0: coming up andy speaks with me about his study and shares a little bit of his data Again, please take a moment to check out our website to do some shopping. Remember, we are including a free buff at a value of $25 in all orders over 20 Visit www.flygal.ca.
1: So uh, out of here, you know, it's uh, out of the Buckley River Lodge. Sometimes we have students in either one or two boats. Um, they're working at the walk-in locations. We've got half a dozen or more volunteers to do
0: um, catch fish.
1: Yep, to catch fish. Yep. And then
0: fight them as they would regularly. Yep. yep, And then after they're landed, landing them both tail grabs and nets. Yep. And documenting that, obviously. Yep. And, and then you're implanting a chip.
1: Yeah, and so um, so we have two different components to the study. One is to look at how the fish physiologically respond to the angling event. By so, way
0: of, uh, how you track this by? No,
1: we take a little non-lethal blood sample
0: oh yeah 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 so
1: so what thickens no no it's 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 it's, takes very little time um so what we do here's to explain it so we're we're we're, we're watching somebody we're waiting we're watching them cast you know they hook up stopwatch starts so we start to quantify we quantify every element of the angle event how long the fish is on the line how long it's handled for where it's hooked if it's bleeding Does it have any net marks on it? Is is there evidence of other damage? Consistent flies? Uh, No, inconsistent. So variation in flies, some dry, some wet, some other things. And for that group of fish, they come in and there are some fish that aren't air exposed. Um, There are some fish that are exposed for 10 seconds and some fish are exposed for 30 seconds and after that time then they get a little non-lethal blood sample it's just like when you go to the doctors and yep. we use the same stuff and we take a little bit of blood and in the field we analyze the blood right there and sort of a, we use, we measure glucose which is sugar in your blood which yeah. is which is uh, basically reflecting of the fight or flight reaction right and we mobilize glucose from our livers and it helps us have that energy to fight so we measure that and then we also measure um, blood lactate so, you know, when you exercise and you get a cramp, yeah. right, that's lactic acid building up in your muscles. And so we can measure that. There are little meters that athletes use because what athletes don't want to happen is they want, it, they want to minimize that lactic acid buildup. So we have these really, they're not that expensive, but they're, um, they're handy. You can take them out in the field. And we also measure blood lactate from that blood sample in the fish. And that's a reflection of that anaerobic muscle activity. And so the longer a fish fights, you know, that they're burning that, they're using their muscles and you get, it's sometimes you get the reflection in that lactic acid. Um, And then we also measure blood pH, very simple pH meter. And we talked about carbon dioxide before. Um, When a fish is air exposed, it can't respire, it can't get rid of carbon dioxide. That extra carbon dioxide in their blood drives, it changes to carbonic acid and the pH goes down. Okay. So we look at those three blood variables and we can relate that back to the extent of the fight time and the, the air exposure.
0: I have a stupid question. No, it's okay. Obviously, there's more oxygen in deeper water. Is that right? Not
1: always, no. Not always. Okay,
0: so it doesn't matter where in the water column you guys are hooking the fish.
1: Not especially in in a fast-flowing river.
0: Okay, so it's, it's really consistent all the way through.
1: Usually. Okay, yeah. okay. It's different in lakes.
0: Ah, yeah. see, so it is, you can't just it's have one in lakes. category. <clears throat> okay. No,
1: it's different in lakes. And so we have those fish that where we're um, looking at the blood physiology or the, the blood parameters as a, as a reflection of the stresses that they're undergoing based on capture and handling. And then we have another group of fish. We're angling them the same ways and those fish come in and we put a small radio tag behind their dorsal fin. And the reason why we don't take the blood sample from those fish that we're putting radio tags on is that we don't want the, I mean, it, it does take a 30 seconds to a minute to take that blood sample. Right. And we don't want that taking of the blood sample to compromise what we see once we release the fish. Right. So we separate those two groups out, but we can can link those two together based on the stresses that we see on the fish that are angled and we take the blood from versus the post-release behavior. And then so we, for the fish that have the radio tag on them, uh, we release them at the point of capture, and then we look for something called fallback. Um, So we know where they're tagged, where they're captured and tagged. And after 20 minutes, we look at whether they've stayed stationary, whether they've moved ahead, or whether they've fallen back, and we measure that. We have a GPS. And then during the rest of the study, we we run the river and we relocate all those fish.
0: This is amazing. Okay, how many fish are you at so far?
1: We are at, we probably have over 40 with radio tags now. Okay. And we probably have sixty or so in terms of blood samples.
0: How many would you like total for this year? We have
1: 135 radio tags to put out. Okay. And it really depends on you know this is this is the um, goes back to the question about you know if it's been done somewhere else why do it here? When you think about where these fish are in the extent of their journey from the ocean to their spawning grounds. Or to their where they're overwintering. And, I, and this is information that I get, again, from the guides and the anglers, that fish in the beginning of the run could be a little bit different than the fish in the end of the run. Right. And so, you know, that's why we're here for the entire season. And we're, you know, doing the blood physiology and everything throughout the entire season and also tagging throughout the entire season. And, and so we want to be able to capture that variation from beginning to end. Um, because I think that's the responsible thing to do. If we were just to come for two weeks and tag some fish at the beginning of the season you know, if you talk to enough people and they're like, oh, the big ones come at the end or, yeah. you know, you, 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 you know what I mean? Like yes. you, you hear all the anecdotes and we want to be able to capture that in the study. So,
0: so I know it's midway through and you're probably yep. going to be very cautious here. But. <laughs> I
1: will be very cautious. <laughs> but
0: I have to ask, like, what's, what's the most surprising thing that you have found so far? And obviously there's an yeah, yeah, yeah. asterisk here. Like. <laughs> yeah.
1: You're to be um, careful. Yeah, I'll be careful. Um, I've been... Surprised by the fact that we're seeing, like today, three or four days ago, we tagged, I tagged, I helped tag about five or six fish in one particular run, and uh, we happened to hit that today. So three days afterwards, and some fish moved up a little bit, some fish moved back a little bit, but they haven't moved that much. And so I know they're still kicking around; they're not dead on the bottom. Uh, because you drive the boat over and you can actually see them you can detect them moving and and so it's it's neat to be able to really with these radio tags you can you can accurately see where they are and what's neat is that you know some of those fish it's not a complete story I'm being very careful (laughs) Um, that you know some of the fish were air exposed for 10 seconds and some of them fell back and some of them some of them moved forward. Uh, we haven't looked carefully enough to see, you know, was it the smaller fish that moved back and the other ones that moved forward? I don't know yet. We, but uh, it's it's been uh, exciting for me to be able to see that we can accurately pinpoint where these fish are. Right. And that we are seeing some movement on a relatively fine scale. We've had one fish fall back about. 14 kilometers. What? But we've had, also we've had another fish move up about 20 kilometers.
0: Ooh, it just sounds like there's so many. So it's
1: Yeah, but we, but, but that's why we need the numbers.
0: Right. Do you have people in the bulk leave, in the canyon as well or down low?
1: Um, we, we've done most of our work above, uh, Morristown and we, we had to create some sort of barrier, not, well, it is a barrier, but, uh, you know, we, we do want to tag a little bit down there to see what comes over the falls. But if you look about where the majority of the pressure is, yeah. it's above. <laughs> no, but yeah. but, yeah, so it's, um, you know, we, we clearly want the study to focus on the areas where there's a lot of angling going on.
0: Okay, that's fair. Yep. I have a very selfish question, actually. Yep. Do, you, do you find, if you can see where these fish are moving, are you finding that jet boat traffic pushes them in? I've never um, seen so many jet boats on this river in my life. I have a jet boat. I refuse to run it on the Upper Bulkley because there's that much traffic. I mean, I've been catching most of my fish in quite close, yep. and I was just wondering if you've noticed that they push in when the boats go by.
1: We know that we like when we're tracking the fish, we can we can sense when the fish are moving, but I haven't actually physically been tracking when we see like boats go flying by. Right. Um, so I I would hesitate to say that we can detect that.
0: That's okay, but it's got um, nothing to do with your study. No. Because mm-hmm. I was very yeah. aware of that when yep. I was doing the survey, which we'll dive into in a moment. Sure. I was looking for any sort of jet boat mention, huh. okay. and and I didn't see any there. Okay. Uh, before I dive into that, though, yep. was there anything else substantial that you found so far in the amount of fish, or with the amount of fish you caught?
1: Um, preliminary results on the blood physiology. Uh, it seems as though... The, at the glucose, the sugar level, is pretty similar across treatments. So big fish, small fish, males, females, so far, we're, don't, we're not seeing big spikes. In, You're
0: not? No. That's awesome. That's great news, yeah, right? Yeah,
1: it is good news. Um, is and, there a
0: button there?
1: No, no. Um, the but is we're still, you know, that it might be different later in the season. Right. Um, it might be different, you know, depending on when the fish have, you know, made it over Morristown. And where they are in, you know, could be related to water temperature and fight times and other things that it's, you know, in comparison to bonefish stuff or work with golden Dorado or GTs, I'm, I'm, it's interesting to look at how little variation there is in the, in the blood glucose across the treatments so far.
0: Okay. So far. Is, is it the same thing for the bulkly as it is for a lot of other steelhead fisheries where the mortality rate's 3%? Does that sound right?
1: We don't know. Not sure. No. You mean the post-release mortality? Yeah. We'll find out after the study.
0: Okay. What yeah. about, and you're <laughs> confident of that?
1: Um, we'll, we'll be able to, based on the fish that we put radio tags in, we'll be able to figure out whether they, you know, if they're still moving up, they're still alive. We are going to hopefully have enough funding towards the end of the study to, because um, you can track, be a plane or helicopter, we're probably going to try to get a helicopter and fly up and down. And try to find pinpoint the final location of the of the fish.
0: Any idea on how many times they're caught on their way upstream?
1: Um, we haven't heard reports of at least any of our radio tagged fish being recaptured yet. I wouldn't be surprised based on some of the fish that I've seen with like I think that's another hook mark in its mouth. Right. Um, so that's a big question that a number of us recreational fishery scientists are trying to get at. Is the what are the potential impacts of repeat capture yeah it's it's super hard to address you know it's the type of thing where we try to simulate it in a lab or we try to find a specific location and a species where we can reliably catch a lot of fish over and over again it's it would be you know that's a different that's a whole nother layer to a study you know we we want to try to address it because we do see in a lot of fisheries. A lot of small trout streams where they get nailed all the time, and you can see that they have multiple wounds. You know, every time it goes back to the idea of stress, and every time, you know, it's every time we're stressed. You know, it takes energy, right? And energy for fish and energy for us is that's the currency of life, right? And if you have to recover from an angling event by you know uh, replacing your energy or regrowing some slime you're not going to have that energy to do other things like grow or reproduce or mm-hmm. other things. And so to start getting at the question of sort of long-term consequences of multiple capture, I'd love to get there one day to, to yeah. study that. Yeah, thing and, and good fun. thing yeah, you're yeah. still young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how old are you? 48.
0: That's pretty young still. So we have you around for a while.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Um, I've got a couple questions for you about slime actually. Because I've done some work with biologists with Atlantic salmon. Yep. And I was shocked at how kind of rough they were really when they were in the hatchery and they were handling the fish. And they had explained, I know hatchery is god, Uh, but you know, they were explaining that the further upstream the fish goes, the more it becomes basically uh, it adapts to be able to handle other males beating on it, uh, hiding in, in rocks and bushes and stuff, yep. or trees, whatever you yep. may have. So is that the same case here? I mean, are these fish going to be more sensitive downstream? I mean, would this, could this study have been done maybe in the main stem skeena, closer to the ocean? I laugh at that. It's hilarious because I can only imagine how many tributaries you'd have to keep track of. But that, you know what I mean, like the slime part of things? Yeah, so
1: that's the trade-off. Um, if we wanted to do this study on a much larger scale, if we wanted to start on the main stem of skeena, the uh the politics would get way deeper the amount of funding we would need would be orders of magnitude greater and because of that there's the potential the project would never happen right and so you know sometimes you have to sort of scale the project in such a way where you can actually still get shit done yeah um and you can still start to address some questions and who knows maybe this could be the foundation for that larger study um, you know or yeah or or, you know as more questions come up you know for every study that we do we answer five questions and we have 10 more at the end. Right. <laughs> um, at least you
0: guys acknowledge that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You,
1: know, that's, you know, that's what keeps us going.
0: So if I were going to play devil's advocate, sure. I mean, as I do. That's okay. What happens if you, if we find out during all of this that uh, catch and release has got a significant, I mean, a detrimental impact on these fish? Do we s- stop fishing?
1: No, I think we what we do is we look at the elements of the angling event that's so we, we can dissect it and um, you know based on what we're testing we're looking at air exposure and handling treatments and'll we'll, we should be able to analyze the data to say that you know these fish are respond you know that are treated this way respond more poorly than these fish, and we can work within our our social context of our community and develop those best practices to minimize the impacts. And, you know, I, I also, you know, I, I, I've sort of been fielding this question a lot. And so I've lucky for me, I've been thinking about it. Isn't it better to know than not know? I think so. Right. And so, and, and because one, if you, if you know, then you can, if, if there's something that you can fix about it, then maybe you can fix it. Right. Right. And, and to the extent too where I also flip it around and say, well, what happens if you know we have the zero air exposure fish and the 10 second air exposure fish and the 30-second air exposure fish? Maybe they all respond the same way and maybe it's not that bad at all. And some people argue, you know, like, oh, does that mean we can air expose the fish for 30 seconds? I'm like, no, because what does it starts to be a reflection on the fact that all of a sudden we have evidence as a community of recreational anglers that even with a little bit of extra stress, we're having a minimal impact. And so if we start to see fluctuations in the stock, everybody wants to point fingers at other people, right? So people could point fingers at the recreational anglers and say, it's a recreational anglers. They're having a problem. There's more traffic. Well, if we can show that there's minimal impact, then we can look at other things like habitat. We can look at, you know, what's happening out in the lower parts of the schema. And so by having a little bit of, by quantifying it in whether it's, whether it turns out to be showing that there's, you know, limited post-release mortality and stress, or maybe there's 10%, who knows, maybe there's 15, but we'll be able to tie it back in and say, listen, if we minimize air exposure, if we reduce it or eliminate it, we'll be able to get that percentage down. And that will help us work within the community with individual anglers and say yes you can make a difference you know that one person can make a difference on the future of that fish and every fish that you handle by reducing or eliminating air exposure
0: what if you find that having a net handy uh helps to obviously aid in in the fish's health what do you expect anglers to do who are in their pontoon boat on their own (laughs) how are they going to do that
1: yeah i mean it's um you know, I think we'll have to continue to we'll have to work with those stakeholder groups to try to figure out a way to minimize that impact. You know, and you know, if net versus tail grab. You know, and at least in that particular case, if for some reason we find that netting is better, you know, then we'll have to ask or we'll hope that they will want to invest in a net. And if they can do that to handle the fish, um, yes, it's a little bit more of an investment, but it's an investment in the future of the fishery. Most of what we've seen for other species is that really it's the air exposure and that doesn't require a different tool. That doesn't even require you know, an extra hundred dollars for this or $50 for that. It requires not taking the fish out of the water.
0: So what are your thoughts on people who take their fish photo and they obviously do their fun hashtags of keep them wet, Yep. but the entire fish's head is just sitting on top of the water and all of its gills are exposed or even 50% of its gills are exposed.
1: So yeah, that's, it's, that's a, that's a controversial thing. Um, you know, I think, um, when we talk about minimizing air exposure, ideally reducing it and eliminating it is, is probably best, but we also have to still think about the, we still want people to enjoy fishing because if they stop losing interest in fishing, then we lose an important stakeholder group in terms of the conservation of not only the fish, but the habitat and everything else. Right. And I think that, you know, the one thing we have to be careful with is that we don't want to end up with a lot of finger pointing between, you know, different groups. And, you know, somebody puts up a social media post and the fish is a little bit out of the water If it's dripping, it's probably a good representation that it's just been lifted out of the water. You hope so. We hope so,
0: and not for the twelfth time. (laughs) Yeah, and not
1: for the twelfth time. So you know, we and I think it's it's all about how we slowly change the the social norm about what the expectations of of us within the community and when we look at other people and how they're responding. You know, I, I get a little nervous sometimes about you know some of the backlash that I see on social media where. You brought up a good point. Do we really know the fish has been brought up once or 12 times? We don't really know. You know, ideally, you know, in the goodness of, you know, in in my heart, I hope it's just one time And, and hopefully with more knowledge, people will reduce the amount of air exposure, you know,
0: with more knowledge, it's got to be more than just, Oh, my buddies say it's cool to keep them wet. So for me, this study is really exciting because I, we do need this knowledge. I'm tired of the finger pointing as well. And obviously it's really magnified on social media, Totally, especially nowadays, just makes me want to run and hide. But, (laughs) um, that brings me right into your survey. And if you don't mind, I do want to ask you about that. Sure. I, I I took your survey. It took me, I think 10 or 11 minutes. Yep. It was surprisingly focused on, I felt anyway on peers and other people, perception, society, expectations. Yep. Uh, There was a level of integrity in there even. Sure. Uh, I didn't expect that. I was expecting it to be really cut and dry and, you know, how long do you hold your fish out of the water, et cetera, et cetera. Can you just go on to explain to my listener what this survey is and how it correlates to the study you're doing?
1: Absolutely. You know, the the science we talked about is going to be focusing on, like, the development of the best practices and using the physiology and the tracking and the outcome of that is going to be some knowledge and some information that hopefully is going to be used to develop those best practices. But then, without the survey and understanding how the community communicates and how people perceive themselves and their role in the community, without that information, we don't know the most effective way to get the best practices to the stakeholders and to the different you know the, the NGOs and the anglers and how they're effectively going to communicate those best practices so by understanding how um, so that the, the you know in that survey we are focusing on things like sanctioning versus praises you know if you see somebody that's air exposing a fish do you like are you are you are you going to just sit back and not say anything or are you going to say something and then trying to understand the motivations behind um, what would force, not force people, encourage people to change the social norm? And so we've you know we've we've tried to address this in other studies, but I think this one is particularly important because we have so many different groups involved. And it's, it is politically charged. It's a very tense area to be, um, you know, and, and we've already been, you know, subject to like, people are questioning what we're doing. Why do it here? You know, yeah. why focus on steel? <laughs> oh, can I go do it somewhere else? You know, I'm like, uh, I don't know. Um, and, and I think that the ties back even uh, into the question about all the different, you know, partners that have provided funding or in-kind support, I want to, take the science and the social science and combine it in such a way so that when we encourage them to share the best practices it ties back to that consistent and persistent message but it's also the tone of the message that is receptive to the people that are using the natural resource in terms of you know interfacing with the fish and because you know i think most people appreciate being spoken to gently and kindly and talking, yes, you, you know, as opposed to being like, Hey buddy, what are you
0: doing with that fish? You asshole. Yeah. You know, like immediate you know. shutdown. Yeah. Don't yeah, yeah talk exactly. To me. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And so, you know, that, um, and, and that's the nature of the social science survey I was trying to get a, um, and again, we can quantify, you could guess, you could make educated guesses and anecdotes, but here we're going to have some quantifiable evidence Some information where we'll be able to have that information guide how we communicate with the stakeholders.
0: Great. Well, I think you're, it sounds like you're covering all facets. Is there, is there some sort of, uh, you're going to hate this question, Mm, but sorry. sorry. Uh, is there some sort of criticism that you've really been hit with that I haven't asked yet, or that I haven't thought of that you might want to address?
1: some of the criticisms that I've received
0: educated ones. Cause we all know there's
1: <laughs> yeah. the
0: other kind out there. You
1: know, I, 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 some of the criticism is like, well, hasn't this been done before? Right. That comes up a lot. So we've um, addressed that. We've addressed that. Aren't you hurting the fish by sticking a little needle in them?
0: Well, we'll p- I'm like, but,
1: but you're already like sticking a big, hook in yeah. it, like a little, yeah, that's, um,
0: are you guys scale sampling at all in this or are they too far upstream?
1: W- no, we're not taking scales. And so that's, that the biggest thing is the question about, you know, hasn't this been done before? You know, didn't we do this on rainbow trout somewhere in the seventies? You know, and it's just like, uh, you know, like that's, you know. Yeah.
0: What about the university of Massachusetts? That's where you teach, right?
1: Yep. I'm a prof there.
0: What's the, what's the response? Are they, they're obviously involved in this. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. Everybody's, I mean, you know, the university provides me a home for where I, you know, I have an office and I teach and, and stuff. And, um, do
0: they have the means though, to be able to take something like this and apply it to other fisheries around the world? So it could be constructive elsewhere,
1: but that would be, that would, I mean, that's, that's my job, Okay. you know, so, um, the you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, being at a university and being a scientist, you're, it's kind of like being self-employed, um, in that, you know, nobody hands me projects. I develop the projects and I find the funding and, and so it's, uh, You know, it's the, the university is very excited about the work that I do. You know, I get a lot of sort of attention. Um, Were
0: they willing to put any money in?
1: Um, sorry. Universities don't usually do that. Um, you know, I, I get, no, not really. Okay. Um, It's, that's not the way, maybe some universities work that way. Sometimes there's a little bit of internal money, but uh, for most of these projects, you have to go and chase down the money yourself.
0: Okay, I've heard something along yeah, yeah. the lines of yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you put a lot of work into this.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And it's completely passion-driven. I mean, I'm assuming you're not making a fortune on this.
1: I don't make anything off it. Because
0: I've seen the numbers. I know what X had to be raised. Yep. And I've done the math in my head, and granted, I... Um, it's an ignorant guess but <laughs> there's no like extra money left over there no, no. for any sort of you know profit like
1: you're doing this no, for free yeah we don't profit no scientists we don't profit from this you know I get I get my salary from the university basically because I'm Right now I should be teaching. Um, I just want people to
0: know that. It's important to me that they know that. You know what I mean? Because they haven't necessarily all looked you in the eye and they don't know your integrity. They don't know where your head's at or any agendas. like, you're doing this because you genuinely love this. So we need to be, instead of throwing criticism, I guess I just kind of want to really emphasize that we should be thankful that we have a prof who, you know, a scientist who really wants to help because he genuinely cares and understands that it's special. So thank you.
1: Well, it, it ties back even to Just in general, like to me, fish in general are special. Yeah. And, and I, you know, as a, as, you know, I I spent a lot of time fishing as a kid and I still fish. And, you know, it's connected me to nature. It has a much broader appreciation, there's a deeper appreciation for the natural world because of that. Right. And, you know, it, it goes back to the beginning of our conversation. If I can do something to help other people understand and, help fuel their passion and help fuel their understanding so that you know they can themselves play a role. They can be the change, you know, they can yeah. help be the change. Yeah. And and to positively positively affect change. Right. And to that and through these little incremental changes, whether it's through my research or through, you know, just the the all the students that I teach and tell stories to about the places and the research that I do, you know, if, if a small handful of them take that information and do something good with it, it's great, you know, and hopefully the recreational anglers that, you know, will hopefully rally around this results of this study and, you know, when that information is conveyed by all these different NGOs and by me and by the guides, you know, that that helps change that social norm and that hopefully I can bring my kids up here and fish for Buckley River Steelhead. You know, well, if that's
0: you being selfish, then be selfish <laughs> away. Know, that's, uh, um, yeah. Thank you for your time. Is there anything that you wanted to add or that you wanted to ask me? No, I think it's pretty good. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you so much for listening.